I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. like, is he going to play the whole song? Well, I, I thought about it. That is the music of the Waterboys featuring my guest today on the program, Mike Scott. Let me tell you a little bit about the Waterboys and Mike Scott. Uh, all right, look. So one of the greatest debuts in Major League Baseball history came courtesy of Jason Jennings. <laughs> you're, you're probably wondering why I'm talking about baseball. I'll explain. Hang on. Uh, in 2002, in his first game, the Colorado Rockies pitcher threw a nine-inning shutout, and he went three for five at the plate, belting a home run in the process. Not too shabby. But this podcast is not about baseball. It's about seismic first impressions. And, in musical terms, the Waterboys made a Jason Jennings-like debut. Taking their name from a line in a Lou Reed song, the Waterboys' 1983 self-titled effort was... Well, I've already used Jason Jennings a couple of times here, so I'll just say this. It was staggering. A surging blast of post-punk, folk, and ragtag rock and roll, the Scottish band announced their arrival in a rather massive way. Songs like A Girl Called Johnny, I Will Not Follow, and Savage Earthheart were straight-up sonic home runs slugged right over the fence. A year later, in 1984, came A Pagan Place. A year after that, This Is The Sea. And let's just stop there for one second. Now, it's one thing to shoot for the stars, but it's something else entirely to actually hit them. 
On those first three Waterboys albums, Mike Scott did just that, crafting some of the most thrilling and exultant music of the decade. I don't know exactly how to describe those three records, but all of them are stratospheric and spiritual blasts of big music that have all the aching beauty of Van Morrison, the anthemic heights of U2, and their own brand of bluesy post-punk soul that's so sonically exquisite at times it doesn't even seem terrestrial. Mike Scott prowls across those albums like a scruffy narrator of a cosmic play that's being written as it's being acted out. The music feels wild and improvisational, and Scott's feral heart is its unifying center, practically bursting through each composition with a passion that is, as passion should always be, untamed and pure. Those albums crackle with life and urgency and mystery, and they brim with a blend of desperation and nerve that takes us from fireworks to ashes. And on those first three albums, Scott announced himself to be as major of a talent as Bono, Stipe, McCulloch, and Robert Smith. But his vision was grander than all of those men, his scope more celestial and more spiritual. Now, lest we not spend the entire introduction to this podcast on the Waterboys' discography, because believe me, we actually could, let's go back to our friend Jason Jennings. Poor Jason Jennings. In spite of his meteoric debut, Jennings ended his career at 62 and 74 with a 4.95 ERA. In other words, he ended up being kind of an average pitcher. On the other hand, the Waterboys, with their meteoric start, ended up being an extraordinary band. Not counting Mike Scott's two solo efforts, over the course of their career, the Waterboys have put out 13 albums, including three in the past five years alone. And the thing about the band that you have to understand is that they are one of the most prolific outfits, like, ever. Their B-sides have B-sides. Check out the Fisherman's Blues box set alone. The output is remarkable. The only musician that I can think of who worked at such a comparable creative pace would have to be Prince, who, by the way, covered the Waterboys' The Hole of the Moon. Now, you're probably wondering why I've not talked about who's actually in the Waterboys. Well, that's on purpose. If I did, we'd never get to the interview. Over the course of their 40-year career, the Waterboys have had over 70 members. So I guess it's best to think of them less as a band and more like a musical collective. Now, the Waterboys have gold records, Mike Scott has written a best-selling autobiography, and they remain one of the most vital live acts around. So, if you're Mike Scott, what do you do next? Well, you put out a new record. That's what you do. Where the action is, is that record. And it's a wicked cauldron of musical styles all cooking together. From folk to soul to classic poetry to hip-hop, this is an album that's vital, alive, and energizing. And that's exactly how it was to chat with Mike Scott. A really nice guy, a real pleasure to speak with. Well, judge for yourself. This is me having a conversation with Mike Scott of the Waterboys right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I don't have an urgent button that I switch on. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. I don't. When I'm writing a song, it it matters to me. I'm engaged with it, 
but I'm not aware of urgency. And when I listen to the records, I'm not thinking about urgency either. Even when I'm making the record, I'm, I'm crafting it or mixing it. I'm not thinking about urgency. I'm just thinking about whether it turns me on. But if urgency is included, that just must be in the DNA. Are you more efficient, do you think, as as a musician? Or have you always felt a kind of efficacy with with the process? Could you just explain what that last bit means? Yeah, like, I guess I guess it means, like, maybe you don't follow things like you're more efficient so you don't follow ideas that you know might lead you into dark corridors that you can't get out of ah ah there must be some of that yes i'm also aware that if i follow an idea that is one i haven't had before or unlike any i have have had before i'm going to get something new so there's that part of it too uh, and i'm helped by technology when i was Working when I began, for example, in the in the nineteen eighties, when I wrote a song, I'd be lucky if I even got it on a cassette. It was really just a thing on a piece of paper and in my memory. And then some weeks later, when the record company and I had talked, we would book studio time. It might even be months later, and then I would try and recapture that thing that I had written, which I carried around in my head and in my hands, on tape with other musicians. And the passage of time was a big factor in that. But now, when I'm working, when I'm actually writing the song, I've got my computer open, I've got a recording program running, I've actually got a recording of the take when I wrote the melody. My, my first ever time singing the melody might be the version that's on the record. Mm. So that, that has increased efficiency. I, I'm also aware, of course, that sometimes the, the first version I sang isn't good enough for a record and I have to keep redoing it, I might have to redo it months later. But sometimes this this magic happens and the first time I ever sing the song does have the magic. And there's a few on this record, the the new album, uh, one track in my time on earth, where the the record you hear is a it's a mono recording of me singing and playing guitar into one microphone. I maybe did two or three takes while I was writing the song. And one of them I knew I knew when I had it I could stop after that one. And then I sent it to other players in the band and they put their things on. But that kernel of it, the centre of the recording, is my songwriting demo, as it were. So you're hearing in real time the song unfolding for me. And I love that I can share that with the listener. Was that something that you sort of... Um, I know a lot of times musicians will sort of kick and scream against the new new way of doing things. Did you embrace that? from the very beginning and, and see it as a great way to aid your process or did, did it take a little while for you to accept it? I didn't think about it at first. I, I, I knew that there were computers with recording programs in them, but I, I, without thinking too seriously about it, I just assumed it would be too difficult for me to work and I would always need an engineer. And then about 15 years ago, I bought a Mac that had GarageBand on it. And I opened up the GarageBand program and I, I looked at it and there was a huge book with it. Uh, I think it was online, this huge book that you had to read with about 100 pages and I thought, oh my God, it's going to take me weeks to learn how to do this. <laughs> but I was wrong. It took me about half an hour. It was so easy. And and all the recording experience I had of decades of, of working with these processes aided me and it was just like child's play. 
and I, I, within a day I was recording masters on GarageBand. It was and it changed my life completely. And I still use GarageBand now. GarageBand's what what I mix Waterboys records on. I don't use the current GarageBand. I've got 2008 computer with the the way they had GarageBand then, which was a lot better. And I still use that. I use the 2008 GarageBand to do this program. So I'm with Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> We're so old school, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. You've you've always been a prolific uh songwriter. I mean, you it seems to me like the the Mike Scott vaults are filled with material. So it's not as though you know, you you haven't had a process where you were producing stuff, but now you're able to do it faster, it seems. Yes, and I'm always working. I don't have to book studio time. I've got a little studio of my own. In fact, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a converted apartment, and I come here most days, and I've always got something cooking. When you were a kid, were you one of those guys that, that locked yourself in your room and just devoted yourself to writing or playing guitar? Were you that guy? Yeah, I was. Yeah, and I used to used to make. I used to use cassettes all the time, and and I used to make up my own cassette record labels and give all my cassettes catalog numbers. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that you were that ambitious uh, that young. Uh, well, I don't know if it was ambitious, but it was just, just, uh, just, uh, just mad about it. Just mad, in the in the British sense, mad for it. Right. Crazy, crazy about music and and about the whole mechanism of of how music got from bands to people. And I used to love record labels um, when I was a kid in the sixties. I used to buy forty fives. I loved the art of all the different record labels and the character of all the different labels and the the way that the the even the the generic the deca sleeve with its slightly psychedelic blue and white pattern how that made me feel about rolling stones singles i used to love all that i used to pour over all the catalog numbers and the name the esoteric names of the publishers and the producer and the songwriter and all that i used to love that well, still you know, do well i do too I, I, it's sort of one of those things where having grown up in the in the early 80s um, you know, like Sire or Twin Tone mm-hmm. or Slash. I mean, those those labels actually meant something that you know behind them was a kind of sensibility that I think yeah, is exactly. not really there anymore. You know? Yeah. Well, some indie labels do have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, some do. But I look at like Island, like that meant something. So I remember when I was a yeah. DJ and, and a package would come in from Island Records, I knew something magical was inside of it. Yes, I understand. Yes, you know. Yes, um, I'm curious about about a song that you r- had for this record that was actually the title track of the last record that mm-hmm. wasn't finished. And and I'm curious to know, <laughs> it's a weird question, but how do you know when a song isn't done? Um, and then how do you know when you've actually finished that song that has been mm-hmm. you know been incomplete? When it's not finished, there's a niggle about something, and I can't settle. When it is finished, the niggle is gone and I can settle. And without of all this blue, the problem was the, the fifth and sixth lines of the first verse. In the finished version, it's you offered up your heart and your heart got torn in two. And once I got that written, the niggle was gone and I could settle. But before that line was written, I had various different things inserted there that never quite felt right. And I always felt 
this won't do. And even though I'd recorded a couple of quite nice versions for the last record, because of that line of lyric, I could never settle on them. When you have a song like that that isn't done, do you? Mm. how competitive are you with yourself? Do, do you stare that song down and say, I will finish you one day, uh, or do you sometimes give up on that number? <laughs> <laughs> I no longer have to say that to my songs. They know who's boss. <laughs> I just keep the song... Uh, a song in my head and on on a on my computer and and I'm always returning to them and saying what can I do here what can I improve here and and it, it's day will come to get finished yes I'm a poet and and I've been wrestling with that even before I phoned you and one of the things that I it's a terrible feeling because when you have that niggle as you say it's hard to be a person in the world. It's hard to be a good friend or a good boyfriend or a good good at your job because you keep thinking about that niggle and it's very hard it's very hard to enter civilian life when you haven't when you haven't fixed it. You no, know, I used to have that experience, but I don't anymore. I think I think when I'm when I'm not working I switch it off. I'm always I'm always available if inspiration wants to hit, or if if someone says something that's going to spark an idea for a song. I'm, I'm always available. My my receptors are always open, but I do switch off. And and I'm a parent now. I've got two children. My daughter is almost six. My, my son is two, and and I have to switch off if I want to be present for them. Because otherwise, it it, it makes you grumpy if you really fixate on it. Yeah. Definitely. A good kind of grumpy. Yeah. yeah. Creative grumpiness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine I imagine that you – I mean, you seem like a guy who, who finishes a lot of songs. It, it's hard for me to imagine you have things that are sort of laying around waiting, waiting to be uh, completed. Well, I have lots of them. And I have old songbooks filled with songs from the, the 80s and 90s that I never finished, usually because they weren't good enough. Not that there's, you know, there's not a sparkling archive of incredible stuff that I should have put out. It's not like that. All, all the best stuff has come out. But there are still unfinished pieces. And every now and again, I'll go back to them. And sometimes they might become part of something new. And, and also for, for people listening to this who are aspiring songwriters, that, that level of trust where you have to trust yourself and say, this is not done. So let's not try to mm. fool anybody, including ourselves or you know, this is done. Um, you have to learn to become a good judge of that. And, and and that's just, you get it from just doing it, right? Yes, experience is the only way. And I've had my songs, including some on record, where I now think, oh, why did I put that out? That wasn't right. And I've got songs that didn't come out. And, and I look back, maybe from 30 years ago, and I look back and think, I should have put that out. There was nothing wrong with it. What, what was I worried about? Uh, and only experience can teach you how to get through that. So that can just be written off as just as, you know, a, a rookie move, someone who wasn't quite as experienced enough to be a good arbiter of that decision. Yes, I think so. Yes. Some people never become that. Some people always need help. That's where uh, sometimes, uh, of course, a songwriting partner or a, a, a experienced and trusting band member or even an A&R man or a producer can help with that. Somebody once told me that all you need is two people that you trust that you can show your work to, and that that's really all you need. Yeah, and you can do it without any as well. If you've yeah. got the discernment and the, the ability to step 
beside yourself. Someone was saying, oh, the Waterboys are so prolific now. And I'm thinking that you've always been prolific, but, you know, you're, you're cranking albums out now. And, it's, and every one of them is just such a joy. Um, do you feel particularly more creative than usual now? Or, like, where are you at? Well, the recording, having a recording e- equipment on my computer helps that, helps speed it up. And the music business has changed a lot. It's more, at least for me, it's more, oh, how can I explain? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you'll know exactly what I mean. It used to be in the old days I would have long talks with the record company before a record would be made because they were paying for it. Right. And I would have to convince my guy at the record company that this set of songs was the right set of songs. And, and sometimes I had to compromise w- with him to, to get in the studio. And I, That just doesn't happen anymore because now I pay for the recordings and then we go and talk to record labels and see who wants to put it out. And it means it's it's just creative driven. I don't have to talk to anyone before I start work. I don't even have to talk to a label before I finish a record. Record's finished and then I talk to them. And for me, that speeds the process up. And I am able to be self-discerning and uh, I can A&R myself. And I can remember all the, 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 the wise heads that I was lucky enough to work with when I was younger. And, and I still have their voices in my head. You know, I can still remember people like Bill Price, the engineer or Rupert Hine, the producer, guys that I worked with when I was in my my 20s and early 30s. And I can imagine, well, what what would they say? And that helps. Or Barry Beckett, who I worked with for a while. Barry Beckett from Muscle Shoals. I worked with him when I was 32, making Room to Roam. And I can remember his his critical judgment very well. What was it that he had sort of imparted on you that you've carried with you? A sense of uh, when a song was right, sense of a song, and um, all the different guys that I worked with gave me different things. Bill Price, um, I think about Bill Price when I'm mixing, because he was a fantastic mixer. At that time, he he was the guy that mixed uh, the Sex Pistols, never mind the Bollocks and the Clashes, London Calling. He mixed Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion. That was just uh, just after that that I worked with him. He was writing high two double albums in the US top 10 and he's a fantastic mixer and when I'm mixing I think oh, what would Bill do here it's really helpful well it also indicates that you were paying attention I mean some people don't pay attention to these things oh I was paying attention and arguing yes <laughs> <laughs> and also yeah watching to pick up stuff now anyone who's serious about their craft has got to pick up stuff from other people. I'm not talking about stealing, but I'm learning. And I used to watch Bill Price in the studio, and he was so crafty and so clever, and he had so many little tricks and, and techniques. And while I didn't I didn't copy them, I, I just learned what it's like to have those up your sleeve and to have that repertoire of, of things that you can do to a track. And I've got my own repertoire now, just like he had his. I like that you were fighting. You were fighting for things back then. And then, at what point did you know that that you were wrong, and and they were probably right? Well, I'll give you an example. I worked with the the producer Bob Johnson, 
Uh, he was uh, the cat who produced Blonde and Blonde for Dylan, Johnny Cash's son, Quentin, the early run of great Leonard Cohen albums. He was a, an amazing producer. Uh, and and I worked with him in the 80s. Now, it was after his glory days, but man, look, he still had some power about him. And we did some recording in San Francisco, and we needed a drummer. And we tried half a dozen drummers, and I hadn't liked any of them. And I, I, I was really being very difficult. And we didn't have a drummer in the band at the time. And we'd actually gone through more drummers than Spinal Tap. And <laughs> Bob Johnson said to me, I'm going to bring in Jim Keltner. And I thought, Jim Keltner, yeah. Of course, I remember him from the Imagine album by John Lennon and the concert for Bangladesh. But that was 15 years ago. I'd rather have someone young. And I said to Bob, uh, could, we, could we have someone younger, Bob, someone our age? And Bob looked at me as if I'd grown an extra head. And he said, Jim Keltner is a motherfucker drummer. <laughs> and I realized, oh, okay, I'll just say yes. So I said, oh, okay, Bob. And the next day, Keltner came in and blew my mind. He ripped me a new ass. I had the most profound musical experience of my life playing with Jim Keltner and realized that I was just being stupid. It's a great lesson. What was it about Keltner that, that blew you blew you away so much? Oh, man. Well, partly his character. He was the coolest, still is the, the coolest man I've ever met. He stands there in his, his shades and, hello, Michael, how you doing? He's like that. He's like Clint Eastwood or Elvis or someone, like American cool. And, and a beautiful, kind man, too. And then when he drummed, the way he drummed, when he, when he played, he moved like a... Uh, like I imagine a buffalo charging, always seemed to be in motion. And he he gaffer taped shakers and tambourines to his arms and legs. So while he was playing, there was this, this undergrowth of going on. And his grooves, the groove was going on inside his head. And his playing was just the physical manifestation of that. And this groove inside his head was connected. I, I can only describe it as being connected to the, the, the mother load, connected to the source. Such a beautiful groove, a beautiful rhythmic sense. And when he brought that into our music, it opened Waterboy's music and and suddenly there was so much space and so much grace in the music. It was a, a profound experience. I've worked with him. I've been lucky to work with him a couple of times since then and it's always the same. It's amazing to think that you were so headstrong, you almost missed out on that experience. Um, oh, man. Tell me about it. And there are probably experiences <laughs> I have missed out because I was headstrong. In fact, I can think of one if you want me to tell you. I and do. it involves Keltner. Ten years later, I was making a record, and Jim Keltner was the drummer. The record was called Still Burning. It was the second of my solo albums sure. in the 90s. And we had a song on it called... called uh, Big Lover, and, and it needed a lead guitar, and, and, and I said to, to, to Kellner, do you think, uh, do, 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 no, how did this come about? No, it wasn't that. No, no, what it was was we had a song called Questions, and it needed a guitar solo. And Jim Kellner, he's listening back to it, and the studio, he said, hey, Michael, I think George could play a good guitar solo on this. And he meant George Harrison, who was his great friend. And I already had a guitar solo in mind that I was going to play. And I said to Jim, oh, um, no, Jim, I, I'm going to play that one myself. But I do have another song that needs a guitar. 
and I played him this other song. And he said, no, I don't think George will go for that, Michael. Uh, Questions is the one, if if you want George to play. So uh, I I stuck stuck my heels in the ground. And I said, no, it's got to be this other song, Big Lover. Would you send it down to George and see if he'll do it? So we put it on a dat, and it was couriered down to George's home, um, down at Friar Park, where he lived, quite close to London. And the message came back the next day. Uh, no, I don't hear any ideas for this. Uh, tell Mike I'll see him down the line somewhere. Uh, and he said no. And, and he died a few years later. I never did meet George Harrison. But if I had taken Jim Keltner's advice and just surrendered my idea of playing my own guitar solo on the first track, Questions, I would not have a George Harrison guitar solo on it. I would have made friends with George. So there's one where I was too headstrong and I missed out. That, that's about as headstrong as one can be, I would imagine. Well, you know, I, I, I can... To be fair to myself, it was good headstrong. At least it was confidence in my own abilities. And I played an okay guitar solo, but when I listen to it now, it is, it's one of my few regrets. George would have killed it on that track. He would have played something beautiful, and I would have treasured it for the rest of my life. I wish I was a fisherman Tumbling on the seas Far away from dry land and its bitter memories Casting out my sweet life with abandoned and love
think that you are easier to work with now than than I mean, not that you were difficult to work with, but do you think that you're mm. easier in in ways now that you weren't before? Yes, well, because that was twenty plus years ago, and as a a band leader and as a a, a musical artist, a musician, I, I've have learned progressively over the years how to. Uh, as they say in spiritual circles, to let go and let God, to let stuff happen by letting go of my control of it. Mm. And when I was in my 20s, I would control almost everything as much as I could because I would hear finished records in my head and I'd want to go into the studio and manifest them. But I've learned over the years, leave as much as you can up to the musicians, direct where necessary. If I've got a killer hook, make sure it happens. But if I don't, Someone else is going to come up with it. Uh, be be easy and cool about it. And to your credit, I mean, you really are a terrific collaborator. I mean, looking at the personnel on Waterboy's records, I mean, you know, you, you seem like you're a marvelous collaborator. Oh, thanks very much. Well, I don't know about that. You'd have to ask the people who've worked with me. But I, I do do always, almost always, let people come up with their own ideas. And I, I like to to be a spark for that. Even on early Waterboys records, you hear this great playing from Anthony Thistlethwaite and Carl Wallinger and some yeah. of those records. And sometimes I would direct them. Sometimes I would give them a, a direction along the lines of, can you do something in this area? But they would come up with their own parts and, and they were magical. So, you know, I had some skills for that when I was beginning, but I've got easier about it over the years i've always found your body of work remarkable because your your early work has no trace of like the scruffy apprentice years that the music was so fully oh. formed um and i and i and it's hard to say where that came from but i mean you must have really just put the time in as a as a kid to sort of have that vision to be so clear well i had about five or six years of recording and playing in bands before the first water boys recordings and those are, uh, I made a few singles with my pre-Waterboys band. They were called Another Pretty Face. And those are scrappy and scruffy. They're just obscure. Nobody hears them. Uh, and I'm talking to the label who owns the copyright. And we are going to do a record, a pre-Waterboys record at some stage. Oh, compri comprised of those old songs. Yeah. And there's a lot. I, I'm not surprised that there's a lot. That you... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you find that you're wrestling with the same themes that you've wrestled with for your entire career, or do you find that you have new new demons to take on? How, how has that worked for you? I don't think about it, and I rarely look back over my music and think, well, what was I writing about then? What am I writing about now? I don't move into that perspective often because it brings a... What I find is a not so helpful type of self consciousness. Mm. I like to let my songwriting be coming from uh, an uncontrolled place. So I just let it come and I write about whatever wants to be written, whatever, whatever is coming. Yeah, because you, you seem like, I like that you said that because it always seems like your compositions come from the wild waters they don't and then and they sort of they sort of go towards the shore they don't they don't start on the shore and go into the water and um there's a kind of untamed brilliance to your compositions and that i think that explains exactly why that is um not really a question more of a compliment mike 
<laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. How do you regard the, the Water Boys as, a, as an organism? Um, because I know that the, the personnel can change, and I know you're sort of you know one of the the, the constant, but uh, or yeah. the, ful- the fulcrum. How do you regard the band as a kind of living organism that you that you govern? When I began, I conceived the Water Boys as a a, a never changing band that would revolve around me. In fact, on the very first press release, which was written with a, a gentleman called Rob Partridge at the Island Press Office in 1983. We we crafted a description that it would be kind of like the Plastic Ono Band, me and whoever I was hanging out with and making music at the time. And for the first four or five years, it was like that. It was a, a rolling ensemble of musicians. Some people would stay longer than others. Some people would come in for a little while. And then at, at different times, including in the second half of the 80s, it, it would solidify into more of a, a permanent band that felt more like a band than me with friends or me with hired guns or me with other players and then it's moved back into me with hired guns or me with other players and then it moves back into friends it it, it keeps morphing and changing and i guess that's really what i had envisaged in the beginning at the moment we have a a high degree of permanence in the band i've got steve wickham who's been with me on and off since 1985 Ralph Salmons is on drums. He's been there since 20, 2011, by far the longest-serving Waterboys drummer. No more spinal tap for us. <laughs> and we've got keyboard player uh, Paul Brown, who we call Brother Paul. He's from Memphis, lives in Nashville. He's been with us for about six years. I like it when, when it's guys that I know very well and can trust musically and and they have to be versatile that's one of the reasons the the band lineup has kept changing over the years if the music changes maybe it gets more rocky for a period maybe it gets more gentle maybe it gets more folky for a period i need different kinds of players but now and then i get lucky and i find the player who's versatile and can play all the styles like those three guys i mentioned do you have a preference for, I mean, do you like a more stable band or do you like the idea that it's more of like a kind of permeable uh, membership? I like it being stable if the players are versatile. Mm. If the music can keep changing, if the players are particularly good at one particular kind of music and can't stretch to another, then, then I will replace them. But if the players are versatile and good team players as well, that's very important, then... I like to keep keep us together. The fact that you mentioned Wickham and and the others, I mean, guys you've been playing with for a while, um, mm. makes me think about friendships in this business. Is it is it difficult to maintain friendships in the music business? Um, it, it seems trickier than I, than I think most people realize. Being a, a band leader who's also the the one who is the cog around which the whole machine revolves means that I have a different friendship relationship with all the people that I work with because in a sense I'm also their boss or their employer. Right. I don't think we ever think of it as crudely as that but it's still a fact. Uh, so it does, it does change it alters the dynamic. It's not like someone that I was at school with and grew up with. It's not a friendship like that and yet it can be a very deep friendship too. And I have a very, what I consider a deep relationship with all those fellows that I mentioned. 
and I'm grateful for that. Was there a confederacy of uh, in the in the early '80s among Scottish bands? Did you feel? Um, I know there was the whole postcard scene, which you had nothing to do with. But I wonder, did you feel that your your fellow um, bands that were that were touring around that you had a kind of brotherhood that was there? Um, because I know in San Francisco there was in the '60s, um, and I know in in certain pockets of of the world there are, but. How was that for you? Or did you feel like you were kind of a lone wolf? I was an outsider. When I lived in Edinburgh, in, in I, I, I'm from Edinburgh. I lived there until I was 12 years old. Moved back when I was 19 to start my first professional band. And that band I already mentioned was called Another Pretty Face. And we were an Edinburgh band. And we used to play around town and further afield. But we never were part of a scene in Edinburgh, and I think partly because the other Edinburgh bands saw us as incomers. They didn't know that I'd been born in Edinburgh and lived there till I was 12. They just saw me and my mates coming in from another town and muscling in on their scene. And we were never really welcome, I felt. And interesting, there's been a movie recently, I think it's called New Gold Dream, uh, and it's about the Edinburgh scene of the late 70s, early 80s. And all oh, I remember all the band names and all the bands, they're all there, but I'm not. And yet, I'm one of the ones that's still standing, still making records, and have been all through the decades since. And yet, still not considered part of that scene. I don't really mind. I'm not personally upset about it. But it's funny. It's, it's interesting. And then when I moved to London, London's very different. London's... the the, the huge big city where everybody moves to and so most of the bands that are active in London have come from other places anyway right. but I still never felt like part of a scene there. The nearest thing to a scene was a sort of small faces, Johnny Thunders knockoff scene in the early 80s that I used to hang around on the fringes of but even that I didn't really feel a part of and then in the, the mid-80s, there were other rock bands on the scene, like Big Country, U2, Simple Minds, and so on. But I never really felt of a piece with those. Um, I knew those bands. I knew the, the, the band members and was friendly with them as well and toured with some of them. We toured opening for U2 and for a while with Simple Minds. But I never felt part of a, a movement with them or a scene with them, No always felt like I was moving to my own beat, moving in my own direction. Why had you let, you guys moved from Edinburgh when you were 12? Where did you move to? I went to a town called Ayr on the west of Scotland because my mum changed jobs. So Ayr was where it all sort of started. Ayr, Ayr was where I had all my first teenage bands. And there was no scene there? Oh, there was a very, very small scene in Ayr. Yeah, there were a few bands and there were... The gigs in air, it's not a big city. Uh, it's a, a a county town, as you would call it. Mm. And it's a very beautiful town. And I had a great time living there and still got friends there. And my early bands did their first gigs in hotels around air because that was the only place to get gigs, hotels. Hotels would be having entertainment disco nights, Really, the music that I wanted to play with my bands, which in, in those days was punk covers or 
stuff like My Generation and Jumping Jack Flash wasn't really what the holiday makers at the hotels would want to hear. They wanted to hear the chart hits of the day. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there wasn't much for us to do in air. And to to find a, a, a milieu in which we could really progress, we had to leave, which I did. I went to Edinburgh. But then I had to leave Edinburgh too. I had to get to a bigger place than that as well. And you have no, zero resentment about about not being included, uh, which I think is is really cool. In um, the Edinburgh, I'm not sure I have zero resentment. Uh, <laughs> resentment, <laughs> resentment would be the wrong word, but a little sense of injustice as well. Like, uh, okay, you've still got your pleasant scene there, but you have to ignore me to to maintain your illusion that that was all that was going on. I still think I think that I also have a, a sense of truth about it. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking back to bands like Orange Juice or, or Aztec Camera, um, mm. who really, I mean, I, I don't know if, if bands have confederacy that kind of sound alike. Um, but... Well, they were the postcard bands. Right. They, they were they were from a different part of Scotland. I think uh, Roddy from Aztec Camera came from Cumbernauld, which is more west, west Scotland, and Orange Juice were from Glasgow. Glasgow was like a world apart from Edinburgh. It was a different scene. I think it was cooler myself. And and I like both those bands very much, and I know both Roddy and Edwin, and and I, I don't know them very well, but I would consider them musical peers and friends. So that was a different scene altogether. But the Edinburgh scene, I always felt outside of, even playing on the same bills as the bands and knowing knowing some of them. I almost feel that you know you that it was almost better for you to kind of to march to your own drum. I think that that really oh, yeah. is right. More authentic. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still feel the same excitement about, okay, a new album is coming out. Um, do you still feel that, that same level of excitement as you did, you know, 30 years ago? I do, but it's different. It's, it's different. It's tempered by an understanding of realities. Uh, which includes the way that albums are released now. They, they, several tracks will come out before the record drops, as we say now. And so, and people may have video tracks at concerts and know what's coming. And and when a record comes out, it gets. It, Andy Warhol was absolutely right. Uh, he could have said every record will get 15 minutes of fame. Gets its day of release, its week of release. Not even a week now. And then the whole game has moved on. And the old days when you would release a record and it would be current for three, six, nine months in the charts, gone. Only a very top sliver of of records achieve that kind of sustained prominence now. And they would be considered phenomena. But when I was a kid, that's what happened with all records. You released your record and it had its long season. Now the season is really the touring season around the record. But the record itself has a very quick burst. But sometimes I think, I grew up in the 60s when music had a power and a relevance and was at the head of a cultural change. And I got accustomed to that. I took it as normal. I took it that music always played this role in society. And then progressively from from the, I would say, from the early 80s onward, I've seen music retreat from that position of prominence and relevance. And 
I realize now that that was a golden age, that that was, that was the unusual time. And that we live now in a time where music, of course it has a personal relevance to people, and it has a power to, indi- power to the individuals who find it or who love it, or to whom it speaks, but it doesn't have the same culture-changing power. And part of me will always mourn that because I grew up in a time when it was so. Yeah, and it also felt like when an album would come out that like the skies would open and the world would pause. Um, yeah, or it, change. Or change. Yeah. yeah. It was like a seismic event. I mean, even something as silly as the Oasis Blur thing, I mean, that, that made yeah. the front page in, in 95 or whenever that was. Um, that was a seismic event. Even that was an echo of an echo of an echo of something that had happened in the 60s. Yeah. It, it, it had degenerated by then. Those two bands, good bands, but they didn't have anything like the, the relevance or the, the influence of the Beatles and the Stones, which is what they were an echo of. It didn't really mean so much. It was, it was funny, but you know, when the Stones pissed on that garage wall in 1965, yeah. that meant something. Or when 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 Johnny Rotten swore on on TV, that meant something too. Yes, that is true. That's one of the last times. Yes, and he wasn't the main mischief maker. There it was Steve Jones. Yeah, it was right. That's right. That's it was right. Steve Jones. What a fucking rotter! <laughs> <laughs> do you do you still think of of records also as this will be the opener? This will be the closer. Do you still think of them in in novelistic kind of ways, or is that also yes. a lost art form? Uh, yes, I do still think of that. On a CD, it's not so much fun because you have a single program of nine, ten, or twelve songs. I prefer vinyl because you get more trysting places. You get the opener, you get the end of side one, you get the reopener at the start of side two and you get the end of the album and also you get the second number and the second last number almost everything has a a charmed place but in a cd i guess you got your opener and your closer and you've got a list it's not quite so much fun as for streaming well that's just gone random right <laughs> right there's there's no there's no sequential order to anything with streaming no it's whatever Whatever. It's the whatever, whatever world. I, I want to talk about your, your collaboration with the great poets, because as a poet myself, I, you pick some of my favorite guys, um, mm. like Burns and Yeats. And, and I'm curious to know, like, what in terms of that collaboration, um, what makes you think, like, well, the, you know, this would be a great marriage of, of, these, of these, you know, his voice and my voice? Um, what, what tells you that's the right move instinctively over that one over another it's really simple it's just down to the poem if the poem scans and rhymes and moves me then i'll have a go at it and most poets don't scan and rhyme in a strict song type sense but yeats often does and burns usually does so that makes them easier to set to music and was burns always was he always one of your guys well, Burns is different for me. We're all very proud of Robert Burns in Scotland. He's our national poet, and we're right. very proud that he wrote Old Lang Syne and A Man's a Man for all that, especially. Uh, and we all know him from from when, when we're tiny children. 
And and you know, I was telling you that I was a teenager in the town of Ayr. Well, Burns was from Ayr, and there's a statue in the centre of town. In fact, the, the, the central square, it's Ayr's version of Times Square, is called Burns Statue Square. And there he is presiding over the, the activities of the townsfolk. And he grew up in, in an, a suburb of Ayr called Alloway. And his childhood cottage is still there. And I used to pass it, drunk, coming home from teenage discos. <laughs> and me and my mates would piss against its wall and wish Rabbi well. And he's seen as a a beneficent figure in Scottish culture. And he's also seen as a a powerful satirist because he took on injustices and he took on um, the hypocritical clergy and he wrote poems satirising them. And that's remembered in Scotland. And Scotland is a, um, a liberal, left-leaning country with a strong sense of ethics and we value what Burns said about those hypocrites. And we also value what he said in A Man's a Man for all that, that all the world all all the world over will brothers be one day. Could have said sisters and brothers, but he lived in the seventeen hundreds. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Had you always thought about doing something with his work? Well, in Scotland, we all know his work as songs anyway, because mm. it's been set to music so many times. Right. Everybody knows dozens of Robert Burns' Green Rushes, or My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose. Often, often misquoted as My Love is Like a Garden Hose, or My Love is Like a Red, <laughs> Red Nose, etc. You know, we know Burns so well, we sing them like that. So setting Burns to music is not something that gets done very often because it's already been done I think I've only set one of his poems actually to music with my own music and that's one called Ever To Be Near Ye in fact it's a contested poem the experts aren't even convinced that he wrote it but the one on the new Waterboys album then she made the Lassies O which is, is a line from Green Grow the Rashies O one of his most famous ones that's a tune that's been in Scotland for centuries I just put a hip hop groove to it <laughs> yeah I, one of the most profound musical experiences for me was in in '93. I think I saw Teenage Fan Club do that live in San Francisco. Ooh. Wow! Yeah, that that was cool. Yeah, and they, and they, did, they did that. Uh, tell me a little bit about about uh, London Mick. Well, that's Mick Jones of the Clash. Yeah, great punk rock guitarist and stylist. Also, way ahead of the game with his sampling and his mashups in the 80s with Big Audio Dynamite and a great guy too and I've encountered him a number of times over the years we're very cordial when we meet each other and I just fancy putting him in the song and when I came up with that, that handle London Mick really the song was halfway written once I got that, that title and I thought well there's a good lot of rhymes for Mick there was no band they couldn't lick What'll he do next? None can predict. So I was off. That was it. He <laughs> the game was afoot. <laughs> I think he's very underrated as as a guitar player. Yes, I think so. Yes, and and also as a producer, he's a very good producer. Yeah. I think of the, of the members of the Clash, he was by far the most instrumental in realizing their records. With a with a songbook like yours, Mike, how in the heck do you pick a set list? Uh, yes, I'm working on that right now because I uh, just finished rehearsals last night, first gig in a few days. I, I got to change the set list 
and a new album to to fit in. And uh, the question is, how much of the new album do we play? It's not out until the 24th, but we've got four gigs before then, so do we play some of the songs before it comes out? Well, there's been two online, maybe I'll put those in. How many of the old songs do we do? How many from the last three or four albums? All those questions, they've all got to be answered. But my overriding concerns are the audience's pleasure and my pleasure. And by my pleasure, I mean the band's, the whole band's pleasure. Uh, those are the two bodies I've got to satisfy. I, I believe that there is a fantastic killer set waiting to be sculpted, but I don't have all the information yet to know what it is, and it will be a product of the first 10 shows. I'm going to make changes, but I'm going to get to something great. That's what I know. All right, there you go, Mike Scott. I think Mike Scott and I both thought the other guy was uh, was okay. You know who thinks I'm not okay? Jason Jennings. I think Jason Jennings thinks I'm an asshole. But Jason, if you're a fan of the Waterboys and you heard this show, drop me a line. I'd love to have you on the podcast. Now, if you want to see Mike Scott and the Waterboys live, or maybe you want to pick up their new album, Where the Action Is, just go to MikeScottWaterboys.com. You heard me right. MikeScottWaterboys.com. Now, if you want to see me live, or maybe you want to pick up my new album, just go to AlexGreenOnline.com. All things related to me are contained there. Now, you can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or you can email me at editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available anywhere you get your podcasts. I don't know, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Last.fm, whatever's left of iTunes. We're in all those places, so do subscribe, leave a nice rating, a couple of comments. That kind of thing goes a long way these days. You guys know what I'm talking about. All right, let's close the show with a new song from the Waterboys. This is the title track from the new album. This is called Where the Action Is, and I think you're going to like it. Thank you, as always, for listening to the program. I'll be back next week. Until then, enjoy the music, and I'll see you next time on Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Let's go, baby. Let's go, baby, where the action is They say the sweetest victory is in the feet And you can fool the whole world with just one tweet My sister could jive, she had money, was cute Till she got crushed alive under Somers' boot Let's go, baby, where the action is Let's go, baby, where the action is I wanna hear one song that tells how I feel Waited all night long for the smell of the real Saw the thunder bleed, heard the airwaves weep The champion we need must be still asleep Let's go, baby, where the action is Let's go, baby.
the storm Hold on to your money and I'll keep you warm I once knew a man, thought he was never wrong He would argue with every damn word of this song Let's go, baby Where the action is Let's go, baby Where the action is Love is action, let's go, baby. 